101.3 FM. This is Fine Music Radio. People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. You're listening to Fine Music Radio, and this is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. Now, my guest this week is Leslie Beek, who has been involved with writing and editing children's stories for nearly 40 years now and has published over 100 books. All her stories are set in Africa, although she was born in Edinburgh, and are rich in African imagery and landscape. They vary from picture books for the very young to novels for teenagers with a good spread of stories for all ages in between. And much of her work involves writing for readers who are reading in English as their second, third or even fourth language. The challenge of corresponding a reading level with an interest level is helped by her background in primary school teaching and in teaching English as a foreign language in the Middle East for the British Council. Quite a life indeed. Leslie Beek, welcome to Fine Music Radio and to People of Note. Thank you. It's good to have you here with your new book lying here. It's called The Time Trackers. And I thought before we start delving into your background and your dark secrets, (laughs) we'll talk about The Time Trackers. And if I look at the back, it says... It's written by the Leslie Beek, but it's about the Tankwa Karoo. And this young lady, Tana, a child, loves its dry, dusty landscape, high blue skies and stones. Tana never gave the stones any thought until the time trackers arrived to tell the story of the, of the stones. And you've called the book The Time Tracker. So my first question is, funnily enough, is there such a place called the Tankwa Karoo? Oh, definitely. It's very beautiful, it's very dry, and it's very far from anywhere, so people tend not to have been there. In fact, I hadn't been there until after I'd written the book, which was an interesting way around to do it. Mm. But the interest in the story comes from my connection with archaeologists. Many of my friends are archaeologists. I've been a kind of groupie on the outskirts of that science for a long time. And I write for children who are often very underestimated in what they will be interested in. They're expected to be interested in small stories and Mm. things that they can cope with. They are actually very capable of being challenged into quite difficult thinking. And probably enjoy it. And they enjoy it. Mm. And it's something they don't get enough of. So I work with an organization that does this. We go to work with children on a voluntary basis, not in schools. And they come because they want to. And they come because they find something interesting. And once they've become interested, they read without even noticing that they're reading. But what is this organization that, you, that you're talking about? It's called the Children's Book Network. And I wanted to call it that because it's about children and books, first of all. And it's a network of friends. And the children are included in the friends. So... It covers everything. How do they find out about you and this network to to come to it? We work through the communities. We we send out um, notifications about our workshops, and they have to have permission from their parents so that everything's organized. And if we ask for 25 children and send out 25 forms, we might get 
47 or 52. <laughs> really? And we discovered that uh, not only are they photocopying the forms sometimes, but they also sign them themselves sometimes, so we had to crack down on that. Uh. But there's a strong interest because I don't think we challenge our children enough. And what sort of ages are you talking about? Um, very young through teens? What sort of ages do you well, look at mostly? We feel very strongly that the age group that needs this most is age 10, and then 11 and 12 and 13 and upwards. The early learning is where they learn to read. But once they get to grade four, when they're 10, they stop. They stop reading because they've never jumped the gap between cats sat on the mat and an interesting story. They know that C-A-T spells cat, but they can't imagine a cat having an adventure or something to do with cats and their history in Egypt or any of those kinds of concepts. Unless you push them a little bit and pull them along by showing them stories and a lot of non-fiction, which they enjoy as well, that makes them read better because they want to read. Well, it obviously works. <laughs> what you're doing is obviously working, isn't it? At because you're having so, yes. quite a success. We've been going for 10 years now, and for mm. an MPO to be going for 10 years means a lot of determination. But it also means it's working with the children. They mm. wouldn't come if they didn't enjoy it. Yes. So what? Uh, how do they, when they come, what do they do? Do they do a course, or do it's a one-day thing, or do they sign up for a course? No, there's there's no signing up as such. They come and they, they, they watch us very carefully, and they listen to us, and they assess us. And we know as children do. Yes, they're they're not nobody's fool. They know exactly what's going on. Mm. But we we interest them with stories written specially for them, so that it is related to their lives, but not completely absorbed in their own life. And then we extend it gradually to being a wider platform, and we bring in nonfiction. We give them activities to do. They do. A lot of writing because that involves thinking about reading. And if you read without thinking and imagining, then you might as well not bother reading. Absolutely. And is this a, a nationwide thing or is it based in Cape Town? I'd love it to be, but it's, it's based in where we are, which is rural areas. Mm -hmm. And we expand it as much as we can. It's now ready to go to provincial if we can just interest the right people in it. Okay, so that's a, that is certainly a sort of a success story, isn't it? I think so, yes. It's been mm -hmm. a battle, and we're still doing it, so I suppose that's a success. <laughs> but it's interesting that you've chosen this as your career, that you want to write and edit children's stories, perhaps more than just being, may I say, a conventional author. Mm -hmm. I think it's more of a challenge. It's more difficult to interest a teenager in a book than practically anybody else in the world. <laughs> and yeah. it, you need to, to, to think ahead and think with them and listen to them so mm. you know what they're thinking. We've noticed, for example, a drastic reduction in the attention span of children in the last 10 years because they have so many alternatives now. And adults, too. They don't read long articles. They want shorter bites. And we've adapted to that. So we keep them on their toes, always mm -hmm. something different. That's sad, isn't it? And it's so true. The attention span of, of a lot of people has mm. narrowed down. And even news items and all that are now so short. Otherwise, they lose the person, little grabs, sound bites, that sort of world we live in. And you're trying to fix that, in a sense, by doing what you're doing. To keep them interested mm. and keep them thinking that reading is a good thing to do and that it's fun. Well, we have that's a lot important, of fun. Yeah. 
and also music is a good thing. What have you chosen, um, Leslie, for your first piece? Well, after a great deal of agonizing <laughs> and changing my list and altering it and so on, I've decided on the first piece I'd like to play is the music for a while sung by Jakob Josef Orlinski, who is my favorite singer in the world. He's a countertenor, isn't he? Yes, he's a countertenor. I love the countertenor voice. I always have. And his, I think, is so pure and strong that when I heard him sing, I, I thought, that's it, that's the voice. And in this, uh, this cut, he's singing with the King's Singers mm. very beautifully. Uh, my, my father loved the King's Singers in their previous iterations, so it's, it has a nostalgia from that point of view as well. Oh, your clothes 
that's a piece called Music for a While, King Singers and Jakob Orlinski, the countertenor there, who, incidentally, Leslie, is quite a trendy. He's always on magazine covers. He's, I know. He's gone all trendy. I noticed that. <laughs> but what a musician and what a voice, as what you said. What a voice. The first choice of my guest, Leslie Beek, here on People of Note this week on Fine Music Radio. And as I said, Leslie's been involved with writing and editing children's stories for nearly 40 years, as you heard. She's also runs an organization. But now let's turn our attention to the book you've just published called The Time Trackers. First of all, what sort of age is this book aimed at, this particular book? It would be 11, 12 and upwards, depending okay. on reading level, because with, with readers, you've got to be aware of the fact that some of them don't read very well when they're older, but they want something that's of interest to them. Mm. So you can't just go on the level that they're able to read to. And it's a bit flexible. So I hope that the interest will catch children who might be 10, even if they're good readers. Yes. But it's really aimed at about 12-year-olds. And what is, I have to say, I've read most of it, but I'm going to get to why I didn't finish it in a moment. It's a fascinating story because I should imagine that someone would become hooked quite quickly, as I was with this young girl. Is her name Tana? Tana, yes. Tana, who sees these people arrive. She's sitting on the rock in the middle of the crew. And... What is the story about stones? How does that work in your in this book? Well, it, it refers to earliest people making tools out of stones. And one of my close friends and an archaeologist is Emily Hallinan, who wrote the technical part of the book at the back. And she is an expert on stone tools and can spot a stone tool at 100 paces. <laughs> and one of the things she did during this last trip to the Tanqua, when I actually got there, was to find some stones that she'd replaced. They can't be taken away. They have to be left on the site. And she needed to remeasure some things. And she went back to a huge heap of stones, about half a kilometre wide. And while she was talking to somebody, she said, there's one. And she found all five that she was looking for. Wow. And that kind of eye is, is very admirable. Yes. So she gave me a new perspective on landscape, which landscape is what really interests me about writing, looking at it in more detail. And although the Tanqua is very sparse, it's not empty by any means. And I learned a lot on this trip, um, just about everything archaeology, early people, making of stone tools. If you only have stone, you have to make your tools out of stone. Are there lots of people living in Tanqua? I, when I say lots of people, I mean, are there a few farms? Yes, yes. We stayed on a farm where the water was running in the Tanqua River because of the good rains this winter and met people and went to a farm school where children who come from the original inhabitants of the of the Karoo over the last few centuries um, are at school together because they're too far from a, a big school to go to. They only go in upper primary. And it was very interesting to show them their heritage that goes back tens of thousands of years to the first people who lived in that area. Yes, they God. were fascinated. Yeah, And you said you went to Tanqua after you'd written the book. When you did go, did you ever think, oh dear, I think I'm going to have to rewrite it? Or did you proudly capture everything you wanted to? <laughs> well, I've been to the crew lots of times, so ah, okay. that helped. Um, the Tanqua is very individual. It's not like any other place in the Karoo. None of them are. And I think that's that's what interests me most about landscape, the differences. I'm just, Tanqua, what is the nearest sort of town to tank the Tanqua Karoo? Because I can't imagine where it is. 
Calvinia, I think, is the nearest oh. large, largest town. We okay. went and gave a workshop to cho- children there. In Calvinia? In Calvinia, at the primary school there. Uh, we, did two, we did five workshops altogether with various age groups and, and circumstances of children, and I gained a lot of insight into what they would like to read about. Mm-hmm. So there might even be a sequel or two. Uh, it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell me how the book is structured, because there we have Tana sitting on a rock and seeing these five people arrive, the the time trackers of four people. I didn't get far enough in because I got slightly sidetracked by the back, which I want to come to in a moment. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about what you aimed to achieve with this book. Well, it's part of a bigger project, which is designed to bring the concepts of time and landscape to the age group I write for, 10, 11, 12, 13 and upwards. Mm-hmm. And those are huge concepts that are pretty much omitted in education. They're so big and they, they, they come up against so many barriers that they're kind of skated over. So time is something that's very hard for most people to understand. If you mention 10,000 years, that's about as far as we can think. Yes, it's sort of a, f- a figure, isn't it? It's, it's a, a long time, yes. I don't do numbers at all. No. And once you get to numbers of millions or billions or this and that, it becomes in- incomprehensible. Mm. So the idea of the series of stories and workshops and handbooks that I'm writing is to introduce children to those two concepts in a way that will interest them and relate to places that they know. And I think it's my life work. I don't know if I'm ever going to finish it. But there are five themes in this toolbox, and the Tanqua is one of them. Okay. And it specifically looks at a field study of how a scientist will find out about the deep past. And the other thing is that it's interesting, uh, Leslie, that you, you take the children into the Karoo. I would have thought maybe you'd write books about the city that they can relate to more easily because they probably wouldn't be able to relate to stones and stone weapons and things in the bush. But yet I presume that's what attracts them ultimately. Yes. It's something the, the, the excitement and um, originality of it all. Yes. And imagining. You know, w- when you give children the opportunity to imagine and think, they do. Mm. If you dumb them down and just ask them 10 questions at the end of a comprehension test, that means nothing. What color was his cloak is the example I often use. It was gray. Then they go on, and when they've done the test, they finish. But if you ask them questions and ask them to ask questions about this kind of thing, you get very interesting answers, and they think they actually begin to use their imaginations, and that's what I aim at with reading and children. I think um, a theme that's coming out of this chat we're having is the fact that many people, many parents and teachers underestimate the intelligence of people of that age, 11, 12, 13, mm-hmm. and their hunger to learn yes. and not to be fed, not to be, as you said, dumbed down. Mm. This is your life's work, as you say, isn't it? It is. It is. <laughs> like a vocation, like a passion. Leslie, we're going to have another piece of music now. What is your second piece? Well, after examining all these choices I've got here, I think I have to have a Handel aria, and Giulio Cesare is my favorite opera. I discovered after I'd watched it twice that I had fallen asleep during it both times. <laughs> I'd missed the head coming in on a plate, so I sat and concentrated one afternoon and watched the whole thing. I love this opera and this particular piece. It, 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 in the David McVicker production, it was at Glyndebourne and also at the Met, they walk, the two 
opposing sides walk to the music. And as soon as this comes on Fine Music Radio, I go walking up and down my passage. <laughs> okay. So it's, it is an aria da tempesta il legno infranto from Julius Caesar by Handel.
handle an aria from Julius Caesar with Bryn Terfel there and the Scottish Chamber Orchestra. And my guest here on People of Note this week is Leslie Beek, who's been involved with writing and editing children's stories for nearly 40 years, and she's just had a book published called The Time Trackers, uh, which involves this area in the Karoo called the Tankwa, which I didn't know existed, but we're learning as we go along, Leslie. Let's talk now a little bit about the... Um, the, the sketches in the book, because as you said, this lady can spot uh, a tool that's been filed out of the stone very quickly. And so you've got her and various people to, to illustrate it for you. And they're lovely illustrations. Who did the illustrations? Michael Patterson is a family friend of Emily's family. She is from England and, and he's English. She's now um, teaching in Portugal, archaeology teaching in Portugal. And she asked him to do the drawings, and he got completely absorbed in the stories of the early people and did a wonderful job. They're beautiful. He does. But what's nice about them is that they're almost shadowy. They're not sort of in your face. They're nicely, mm. almost like a pencil sketch, but not a pencil you sketch. You can use your imagination as well. Well, that's exactly mm. right. So you're training the children there yes. as well, even when they're looking at pictures. Um, and then the big thing is at the back of the book, there's a whole section uh, where you guide people. And it really is a lot. Pieces of the past, the tanker tools, um, meanings of various words that you use in the course, stone tools, all that. So I became completely distracted by that. And that's why I haven't finished the book. I'm sorry. But that must be quite valuable to everybody, even an adult reading this book. I think it is. Several people have said to me, adults have said to me that they didn't know what was in the book. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons for doing this book is another project, which is an outreach project from the science of archaeology to bring knowledge about what they're doing to more people. Mm -hmm. Because it's a very scientific uh, pursuit and a lot of people have a vague idea based on Raiders of the Lost Tombs and that kind of <laughs> yes, stuff, which yes. has nothing to do with really what it, what goes on. Mm -hmm. And there's been talk for some time of educating people, but particularly young people, in the value of archaeology and why we should still have it. You know, it's it's something that doesn't touch everybody's daily life seemingly. But it does, in fact, because if we know about the past, we can think about the future. There you go. And also archaeology is, as it sounds to me, although you said you're, a, you're an almost an archaeologist. Well, how did you describe yourself? I'm a groupie. You're a groupie. <laughs> it is a fascinating subject because whenever you see documentaries, for Egypt, for example, or really it feels as though you are looking into the past, whereas these films, Raiders of the Lost Ark, are very fantasized, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And have been no real resemblance on what goes on. And yet, that's what they'll see. So what I'm saying is we need a book like this, don't we? I think we do. I think we and do. with the background you've given at the back. Mm -hmm. And that background is for the children as well, is it? Yes. All that at the back? Yes, definitely. It's put in language they can understand. I mm -hmm. mean, children don't have to speak in words of one syllable. I mean, if you speak to the average six-year-old, they will tell you all the dinosaurs' names. They know them. They can spell them when they can write. Wow. They can well, thanks do to it. Jurassic Park. It, there you go. Partly that. There's a fascination. <laughs> because they're interested, they want yeah. to be able to read and write about it. And be able to pronounce it and speak about yes. it. And talk, yeah. So um, in this book, with the um, stones, so I haven't gone through. So what happened? Oh, maybe you shouldn't tell us. Don't give, <laughs> don't give the story away. Well, I can tell you that there's three girls involved. 
One is the present-day child, one is the young archaeologist, and one is a girl from deep time who they find remains of, and she becomes part of the story. And Tana? Tana is a current, present-day Tanqua girl. Okay. Is she an actual person, or did you invent her? I invented her. Okay, Based well. on a lot of children, I know. Yes, of course. <laughs> Have you got your own children? No, Leslie? I don't. I haven't got time with all this. <laughs> and yet you have this inherent understanding and desire to work with children, which, as you said, can be very challenging. It is. It's, a, it's very interesting. And I think the language aspect is perhaps the most interesting because this balance between not patronizing, not talking down to but not writing in a way that they can't possibly read mm. is is a very fine balance. And well, I found the parts of the book that I read, I didn't feel that I was reading a children's book, yet I understood that everything you wrote about was very clear, mm. the occasional repetition of a, of a phrase, or, you know. Um, but I, I, what I'm going to say is adults must read it as well and give it as presents to children. How about that? Excellent with Christmas plan. coming up. Don't you think that's a good plan? <laughs> Excellent plan. Um, so apart from this book, let's just look at what else you've written. You've written, they say here, over 100 books. Have they all been children's books? Yes, for various age groups. Mm-hmm. Um, Have they all been novels in style? Novels? No, they've varied. I'm very fond of the idea of taking a subject and writing about it in an accessible way and including some story so that there's a a hook to catch the interest and then there's some information to follow up with. Mm. And some of them are like that. Yeah, because a hook is a good thing, isn't it? Because that Mm. does, especially a child, would something would click and it continues. So this hook must be very important. But you also said something about brochures and other things that you've written um, apart from the books or did I get that wrong? Handbooks. Handbooks. Um, we, we, as, as our, an organization, Children's Book Network, we've worked for 10 years to produce a lot of material to use with children and we're now consolidating that into toolboxes, reading toolboxes which contain the work that we've made, the stories I've written and it's it's actually easier to write the stories and to try and get other people's because that involves permissions and publishers and endless confusions. I like the word toolbox. What, what, what does a toolbox contain? It, it contains book bags with different topics. So there's three in the red toolbox, which are for 10-year-olds. There's four in the green toolbox, which is about the environment. And then there's five in the blue toolbox, which is for the older children. And in that are published books the handbook with a lot of stories, about 125 pages of poems and stories and non-fiction texts, and instructions to the child about how to use them. So it's it's a one-stop shop. Yes, gosh, it's a brilliant idea. Anyway, let's take a um, a break, another music break, and then I want to find out about your background in Edinburgh and all the rest of it and how you ended up in Stanford. And maybe you must even tell us about the... um, flood damage in Stanford, but we'll get to that. What is your next piece, The Lost Birds? The Lost Birds by Christopher Tin. I found Christopher Tin by accident in one of those worm, wormholes you go down in Apple Music, and the moment I heard his music, I was absolutely hooked. He writes the kind of music that I love, and this particular CD was only re- released this year. It's called The Lost Birds because it is a, 
um, a eulogy for birds that will go extinct. And that's a bit of a sad thought, but the music is absolutely glorious. And the piece that I've chosen after considerable listening to this one, <laughs> I've spent a lot of time enjoying this music, is called Bird Raptures, and it's very beautiful.
That was a piece called The Lost Birds. Christopher Tin wrote the music, Bird Raptures, Voce 8 and the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. A choice of my guest, Leslie Beek, the author. You implied, Leslie, a few times that you really battled to put a music list together. I did. <laughs> it's, you'll be surprised how many guests on this program say, I really battled to choose four or five of my mm. favorite pieces. I would hate to have to do that, but fortunately I'm not the guest. But I want to find out more about your background because, as I said at the earlier, and you said you were born in Edinburgh. So where did the writing thing come from and how did you end up in South Africa? Well, the writing thing started when I was at school. I used to write to a Roman centurion who wrote back, so it was quite interesting. I, I did both parts. A real Roman centurion? <laughs> well, I made him up. But oh, you know, I was going to say, right. <laughs> but it was about Roman Britain, which was my fascination at school. But we emigrated when I was 16, and my father was offered a job in Nysner, and the whole family came. So I think that gave me a very unusual perspective on South Africa as a landscape, and without having to look at any other aspects about South Africa, just the landscape is enough to fascinate a person for the rest of your life. <laughs> and I've been fortunate to move around a lot because when I was teaching, it was you could move. It was permitted. And I, I've done other things as well. So wherever I've gone, the landscape has become part of of my DNA as well. And I think it's a very, very valuable place to start from with a story. Sometimes I'll think, well, I haven't written about the Eastern Cape for a while, and then I take myself back there to when I was there and remember it, and the colours and the scents and the the way people were. And I think that has been a great asset to me in my writing because I was new. I hadn't lived here as a child. I came as a, a young adult mm. and got the opportunity to experience South Africa from a different perspective. And it seems as though you've also done a fair amount of travel writing and broadcasting. Yes. I know you've done some broadcasting for us. Yes, indeed. That was for our book choice program. It was, yes. And the travel writing? I used to do the letter from Vintuk for Women's World when we lived there. I did that for a few years. For the Women's World on the English service? Yes. Right. And I did another series on travel for them. But I also edited travel magazines and got the opportunity to travel um, largely as a non-profit-making exercise, but go to interesting places. Mm -hmm. So that was that was good experience as well, and it also added to my my landscapes so that I could. So, as you say, landscapes are hugely important, and certainly in this book, the time trackers landscape is the main narrative. It's it's the whole the whole reason the book is written, isn't it? The mm -hmm. landscape. And when did you first go to the Karoo? Because if you landed up in Nisner, you would have been surrounded by the sea and beautiful lush or subtropical countryside. Well, I, I, my, my family stayed in Nisner. I went to Rhodes University far too young. It passed over me pretty <laughs> much completely as far as social life's concerned. And then I had a boyfriend who taught in the Eastern Cape so I went to the Eastern Cape as the first place that welcomed me in South Africa. And by golly, did they welcome me. I really felt so special when I went there. I we're still in the Eastern it. Cape. I taught in Adelaide. Oh, so you were a teacher. Yes, I was you studied a primary as a teacher. school teacher, yes. And then went with the same boyfriend. We went to the, to the, the, the then Transkei, and I taught there for a year. And then in the Western Cape, and I could just move around as I... As I wished, really. And mm. when I got married and to somebody else, I went to Britain. <laughs> and then we, we lived in the Middle East for four years. And then I had this exposure to 
teaching adults language. And it's fascinating to, they all wanted to learn conversational English. So I could teach Japanese people without being able to speak Japanese. But I'd hear the Scottish accent coming back sometimes. It was quite interesting. <laughs> interesting that you haven't lost the Scottish accent after so long. And you're probably mm. quite proud of it. I am, but I don't think you, you have much to do with it. You know, <laughs> no, it just... If you're over a certain age when you move to another environment, then you lose it. Mm. You take on the protective colouring, I suppose it is. But I was born Scottish and, you know, it's part of my character. So my, my accent, I don't know I do it. And it just comes out that way. <laughs> Well, why not? And so, obviously, you retired from teaching and then concentrated on writing and travel and that mm, sort of thing. Yes. And the rest, as they say, is history. Pretty much, yes. I was very fortunate that when I started writing in South Africa, there was a great shortage of novels for teenagers set in South Africa. And my first book, The Strollers, is still going strong. I'm meeting people whose grandchildren are using it at school now, so (laughs) it's been going for a long time. What's it called, The Strollers? The Strollers. It's about the street children of Cape Town. Ah, okay. A positive look? or Yes. I mean, uh, there's nothing completely positive about being a street child, but they choose to be there uh, for reasons of very bad backgrounds. Mm. They live a life which is probably different now from what it was then, but it's... It's worth looking at their lives and giving it some importance. And they were part of the story. They were consulted at all times. And one of those street children, I read part of the book before it was published, he said to me, you know, nobody's written about us since that, that man who wrote about the little match girl. Oh, wait a minute, yes. Hans Christian Anderson. Yes, Hans Christian Anderson. an amazing perceptive thing for a child to say who a doesn't go to child. school. Yes. Mm. My goodness. Okay, Leslie, we rush racing towards the end of the program, but I still want to find out more about Stanford and if you were affected by the floods. I gather Stanford was badly affected, but our next piece of music is the Mozart sessions, Bobby McFerrin and Chick Corea. Mm. Now, what is the reason for this? Well, one of my strategies in making this list was to try and get as many of my favorites in at the same time. So <laughs> Mozart is obviously a favorite. I love Bobby McFerrin and I love Chick Corea, so putting them together seemed to be a, a way of covering a few more options. And this particular piece, Song for Amadeus, is one of my favorites. Thank you. 
The Mozart Sessions, that's a song for Amadeus and Bobby McFerrin in Czech Korea. Who'd have thought? And it was the choice of Leslie Beek, the author of children's stories, as we've been talking to today on People of Note. And just as we race towards the end of the program, one of the, the chapters that I found interesting at the back, the Tankwa tools, how did, how did you find out about those tools? Did your archaeologist friend help you heft a wooden stick that is shaped and attached to a stone tool as a handle? Horn fells. Retouch, spear thrower. You've researched all this, and it's, you've given some detail about what they actually mean. Emily has. Um, one of one of the things that's very useful is to have an expert witness in any story you're writing. <laughs> and I tend to. Uh, somebody said to me recently, a man who can't read or write. He asked me. He said, "You you write books, don't you?" And I said, "Yes." And he said, "So that means you're always thinking about something else." And it's the best definition of writing I've heard. So I don't do the specifics. How many million years ago? Don't ask me. Mm-hmm. But I work with people who, who do them. So Emily knows all the technical stuff. I wrote the stories. Okay. And may I ask you now, what's next after the time trackers? Have you got another book yes. lurking in your mind? Curiously, when I was in the Tanqua, I sat on my own for a few minutes uh, with space to write something, and a story popped out about Arniston. So that's what's Arniston. going to happen next. It's going to be about Strandlopers, basically. Uh-huh. And I've got a wonderful first chapter, and I have no idea how it's going to go from there. <laughs> Good. But now, you mentioned Arniston. I know this is a long way around the corner and inland, but you live in Stanford. And I know we've had a few bashes at doing this interview. Both of us had been ill, and then... Stanford was very, very badly damaged, wasn't it, in those storms we had in winter? It was very bad. It's affected the village a lot. Um, it's, it's, it just came out of nowhere. And the water didn't rush through. It rose very quickly and inundated people's homes. And the technicalities of that are you have to wait till it's dried out before you can move back in. You have to basically throw away everything that was in the house. Did it happen to you and it your hap- house? It happened to a cottage on the property and also to our children's book network store where we had all our new books that we oh, were. Oh, no. So we lost a lot, and mm-hmm. we're just hoping the insurance gets around to paying for them. And is it at Stanford at the moment, is it looking as though it's being fixed? It's recovering. But there's a lot of building going on and chipping of plaster, and oh, yes. it's going to be a long process. So, and I think people in the village were deeply affected by it. Even if they weren't personally damaged, this feeling of, of trauma is, is there, and it will take mm. a while to go. And did, did the neighborhood sort of come together, the yes, people? Absolutely. Was there a good sense of community? Absolutely, yes. Well, that's good, because that when, a, when there has been a trauma like that, you need the sort of support mm. of neighbors and friends, don't you? Yeah. But is there a reason you stay in Stanford, apart from the fact that it's very beautiful when it hasn't been <laughs> ravaged by <laughs> it floodwaters? It is very beautiful. But the reason is really it is such a good community. And what you just mentioned about people coming together is definitely part of it. If somebody's sick, everybody's there with soup or, you know, whatever's needed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I like that. It's a nice size of community and very good people. Well, let me just say that Leslie's book, The Time Trackers, is out. It's just been published. You've just had a few launches, haven't you? Yes. I think even with Vox. 
Yes, yes, Robert, John Woodland and Company. Yes, um, the book is out in time for Christmas. How about that for a That's little plug? <laughs> is it available on the shelves? It's not yet. We only just got a hundred copies from England. They were pu- published over there and, and sent over, but we will get them into shops in time. In time for because gosh, it would make a lovely gift from eleven upwards. Yes. Okay, there's something to think about. The Time Trackers by Leslie Beek, who is my guest on People of Note this week. Leslie, what are we going to play you out with? Peter Louis van Dijk and his San Gloria. Yeah, I love this music. It's absolutely fantastic. And I heard Vox singing it recently. I've heard it before, but I heard them singing it and I immediately added it to my list. <laughs> so I hope you can play their version of it yes, because I'm, sure I'm a can. Vox groupie as well as being an archaeology groupie. groupie. But you said you were involved with the San people at some time. Yes. In what been, way? Well, when I lived in Vintuk, I offered to do some writing for an NGO that was working with San communities in the far north. And I wanted to research a book, which I did do, and I wrote the book and it was published. And then somehow I kept on writing for about another 20 years. So <laughs> it's been a long-standing interest. Good. And don't stop. I don't think I can. No. And don't write the cat set on the mat. No. Okay. You've said some fascinating things about children and how we mustn't um, dumb down and patronize them and how they have questioning minds. It's the time when their minds are developing. So thanks for that, Leslie. I hope some parents are listening. And um, we're playing out, as they say in the business, with a Gloria from the Peter Louis van Dijk San Gloria uh, with the Vox Group. Is that right? I hope so. Leslie, thank you very much. Thank you, Rodney. It was very nice to be here.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. 101.3 FM. This is Fine Music Radio.